you look at what happened in the story, but I got to go. I have to go back and think. This didn't happen overnight. They they just didn't. He just didn't make a seventeen year old in charge of everything he had in a week or two. Okay, uh, he. Uh, you know that he started with the most trivial task. He started out sweeping the floor, or feeding the sheep, or gathering the grapes or, or whatever. You know, I don't know what all kind of enterprises Potiphar had going on there. But, you know, he started a 17-year-old kid, basically, uh, with the most menial tasks that there were. But what I see here, and this is the first point that I'm going to make, uh, someone, don't know if it was his daddy or if this was straight from the Lord, but someone taught this kid a Christian worth ethic. He understood what it meant to do, to work. He, uh, in Colossians 3 and 23, I'm going to, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This kid took little small tasks and he did them with excellence. And then he got entrusted to do a little bigger task. And he did them with excellence. Until one day, he was overseer. He was head of the entire house. It said nothing happened there that Joseph didn't take care of it. All Potiphar ever did was come home and plop down at the dinner table. He didn't worry about anything else because Joseph had it under control. And I think that's a that's a quick little lesson. This is these first three stops that we're going to make are uh, just some observations that I think that all Christians could apply to their lives. So, what does this look like today? What does this look like for us? What does it mean for us? Uh, a Christian ought to be a model employee. A Christian ought to be head and shoulders above everybody else in the workplace. Uh, he should be respectful. He or she should be respectful uh, of their superiors and of their co-workers. They should be a blessing. Because somebody's going to take notice. If you're doing this, somebody's going to take notice of you. Uh, you know, when you get done with what you're doing, find something else to do. Hey, can I help you with that? Hey, would you show me how to do that? Why don't you let me take care of that for you? No, I don't mind staying late at all to get finished up, if that's what you need, sir. That's what a Christian employee looks like. And I promise you, I've, been, I've, owned, I've owned the business for over 20 years. I can tell you, in my business or any other business, that it doesn't go very long unnoticed that kind of employee. And as Christians, it should open up the door for us to witness because sooner or later, somebody's going to come and say, what is wrong with you? Well, I just do everything I do as unto my Lord. It gives you a door right in to witness through nothing but doing a good job. Okay. Let's go back to 39. And we're going to read a couple of short verses real quick. 
let's start right there at uh, chapter or verse 6, where it says he was left in charge and he didn't concern. He says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Well, that's a problem I never had, but anyway. Uh, uh, must be now I can't really, uh, I don't know that I can really relate to that, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Uh, what a position this young man is now in. Uh, his master has trusted him with everything in the house. And uh, her, that wasn't a request that she made. She owned him. He was a slave. He wasn't, she wasn't asking. But Joseph, <clears throat> for a young man, unbelievable response. But my first point is with her, we'll look at, we'll look at some negative reinforcement uh, for Christians this morning. Uh, the next section says, on a leash, put your eyes on a leash. If you let your eyes run around unchecked, it's only a matter of time before it'll infect your heart. When she, she cast her eyes like I cast a fishing pole, she cast it with the intention of catching something. This wasn't a, this wasn't a mistake. In Matthew, well, no, I'm sorry, skip one. Uh, in Job 31 and 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Made an agreement with my eyes about what I'll do. Uh, in Matthew 5, 27 through 29, <clears throat> you have, whoop, I, might, I might have left out a verse there. He says, when you look at a woman, say, you have already <clears throat> committed adultery with her. You can't always control what appears right before your eyes, but you can control what your eyes and your mind do immediately following that. And I'll tell you what you do have absolute control over, and that's the remote to that TV, and that's the mouse of that computer. Now, ladies, y'all, as we can see, we're actually talking about Potiphar's wife here. This is kind of, most of these scriptures are kind of geared toward the guys, but I think you know that you can turn this around. And, uh, and this applies to all of us uh, equally as much. So, you know, if you go back uh, to the garden, little refresher course back to the uh, where we started in Genesis. Uh, how did all this really, this situation of sin and the state that we're in in the world, how did it all get started? 
Uh, there we go. Let's go on back to, uh, let's go on to Genesis um, uh, 3, please. There we go. And when the, when the woman what? Saw. Saw. The fruit of the tree, and it was good for food, and it was pleasing to the what? Yeah. It went downhill from there. Because what happened from that point on uh, had an effect on all of mankind forevermore. Put your eyes on a leash, ladies and gentlemen. Just good practice. It will save you. Probably it rates right up there with your tongue, getting you in trouble. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Uh, let's see, where are we? We're in verse 8. Starting in verse 8. So she has just said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are, after all, uh, you seem to have forgotten, his wife. Uh, how, then, can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she's spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, lie beside her, or to be with her. He wouldn't even be in the room with her. Uh, but one day, uh, he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Point number, observation number three for Christian living, run. Flee. I mean, for a young man in his 20s, uh, this is pretty good wisdom, discretion, self-control. I mean, which, if you read, that sounds like the fruits of the Spirit right out of the New Testament. But this young man didn't have a Bible. He didn't even have the Old Testament at this point. Uh, but but what, uh, what, a, what a great deal. I mean, what a great wisdom uh, and what great self-control for a man, young man in his 20s at this point. So let's, uh, we're going to run through three uh, scriptures real quick. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, reject every kind of evil. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from the sexual immorality. <clears throat> every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 2 Timothy 2 and 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those things, <clears throat> along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 
reject, flee, and flee are the first words in those three verses. The very best way to obtain complete victory over sin and temptation is to put as much distance between it and you as you can and keep it that way. And that, Joseph certainly tried to do this in every way it could. We saw that, uh, we see as we go on in the story, uh, a bad turn of events, but uh, he certainly did exactly what he needed to do. We tend to want to, uh, we want to toy with sin. We say, oh, well, we can be around that, or we can watch that, or we can see that, or hear that, or, you know, whatever it may be. But, uh, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you don't go in a bar with the excuse that you're going to get a drink of water. Reject, flee, run, avoid every form of evil. Amen? Okay. That's the three quick observations, and then we're going to take a look at things from a little different point of view. So let's read, let's read on out the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the chapter, uh, starting in 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh to me, to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words of his wife, that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Footnote, it does not say his anger was kindled against Joseph or at Joseph. I think he had an idea, maybe, about his wife, because what we're fixing to see is, and Joseph's master took him, and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. I think had he really thought that what she said happened had happened, uh, he'd have lifted his head right off of his shoulders. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Uh, so there's several things in play here. That's one of them, and, and the other of it is we'll talk about later. Uh, but the Lord was with Joseph. You know, that song we just sang, you know, it's blessed be the Lord when it's all like it ought to be. But it's blessed to be the Lord when I'm in the desert, when there's blood in the offering. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So here's Joseph now in prison. Uh, but Joseph was, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one that did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made succeed. So, once again, we see uh, Joseph, obviously, with a work ethic, uh, he obviously picks up on things real fast, because I don't think he'd ever been a jailkeeper before, but uh, he was now, and evidently was doing, obviously, was doing a, a very good job at it, because the, the warden there didn't, said he didn't pay any attention whatsoever to what was going on. If Joseph was taking care of it, Joseph was taking care of it. And uh, more of that Christian worth it we're talking about. But what we're going to talk about now is a little bit uh, beyond just the obvious kind of observation about the story. We're going to kind of get into something that I know I've seen a lot of Christians wrestle with, uh, including me. So, if you've read, does anybody else but me, when they read this story of Joseph up to this point, is there anybody else that can't help but cry out, but that's not, that's not fair? That's not right? Why is, what? I don't understand. Good, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, right? That's how we think. See, we've bought in. We've all had a little bit of that prosperity message because we want because it sounds nice. You know, you want to believe that, and and we want to believe we don't. We want to believe that bad things don't happen to good people, but uh, the facts are evident all around us uh, that that's not the case. Uh, so we have that one-on-one one, one, -on -one relation, you know, we understand, and we even understand about our personal sin. If I get caught stealing and I get put in jail, well, I sinned and I got what I deserve. And, and we're okay with that. That's, that's okay. Uh, but here we see Joseph it said in, in four times in chapter 39, it says the Lord was with Joseph. So naturally, we believe that if God is with you, he's going to protect you, right? Bad things aren't going to happen to you if God is with you. Good. That's not right. That's not fair. Uh, so where does that leave us? I mean, it, you want to go, well, please tell me. That it's all going to work out in the end if God's with you, right? Absolutely. It is. It is going to work out, right? Uh, the Bible tells us so, and our faith holds on to Revelation 21, where he says, I'll wipe every tear from every eye. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more sorrow or crying or pain, and the old things will pass away. You've got to hold on to that in your how I many you hold on to that with everything that you've got. But in the meantime, tethered to that, we've got this, what we can't deny, what we see is the very case. We have to accept what we see all around us, that bad things are happening 
to good people. And we don't like it. But when Adam opened the door for sin to enter the world, sin stuck its foot in the door long enough for death and sickness and disease and pain and sorrow to come flooding into this world. And we're all affected by it. And we all have to suffer the consequences of universal sin in this world. It's everybody. It's all of mankind. Some, some, uh, some more than others, where you are, you know, even still with the problems that we have in this country, you can't imagine what, what people have to live through in some other parts of the world. Uh, the sickness and disease and whatnot. But, but we all have to suffer these consequences from this universal sin, and we don't like it. I don't like it. Uh, it's not fair. It's not right. And we can't face it away. We can't pray it away. We can't obey it away. It is the fact. I know, I have known people that have, they've fallen from the faith. They've left the church and given up on God because they could not reconcile these good things. These, these two, how could a good God let the, all these bad things happen? Even though the Bible is full of bad things happening to good people. Uh, we're reading about right here in, in 39. Uh, I mean, the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, tell a story of the very worst thing possible happening to the very best person that ever walked on this earth. So nowhere in there does it say nowhere in the Bible? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of good verses in there about being blessed. If you you know you think about it, uh, there are, but uh, but there's also plenty of things in there that would lead you to believe that no, it's not all going to be uh, primrose. You know, dancing down the aisle with a throwing rose petals. So, but my question is. So where's the perk for being a Christian now? I mean, do I have to wait till I die or Jesus comes back to cash in? Uh, you know, that's how I think. I won't include y'all. I don't know. Maybe y'all don't think that way. I think that way. I'll just, I'll, I'll put it on me. Uh, you know, what's the deal? I mean, it's not enough that I get to go to heaven because somebody else paid a debt that I could never pay. Uh, you know, that, uh, and if you want to talk about fair, if you're wanting fair, I, be careful about wanting fair in the world because uh, it was not fair that Jesus had to die for a wretch like me. But if he doesn't, I'm toast, literally and figuratively. Uh, so, so watch out for the fair thing because that wasn't fair at all. So looking, so so I'm looking. What uh, what? Where does that leave now? You know, right now. I understand it's all going to be okay in the end, but between now and then, what's the deal? 
Well, let's look at a couple of real pretty familiar scriptures real quick. In the 23rd Psalm, which I hope a fair amount of you have memorized, uh, but in verse 4 of the 23rd Psalm, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil for somebody, for you are with me. There's the deal. It's not that we don't have to walk through the valley. The deal is God is with us. Matthew chapter 7. We're right at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells a very familiar story about two guys that build two houses. And one of them uh, is on the... uh, is one of them is on the rock. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus goes into, I think, obvious detail here. The same thing happened to both houses. The rain came, the creek rose, the wind blew, but the difference was the one built on the rock stood. So here again, we don't get to escape the storm, but we get to survive it because we're because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because we're built. <clears throat> Our house is built on nothing less. Uh, one last verse, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Well, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So again, one more time. It's not that we don't ever have a time of need. We do. We all do. And if you've been on this earth very long, you know that that's true. But what do we have? We have a priest that came down to this earth and he lived just like we live and he experienced everything we experienced. And because of that, and because he gave his life for us, when we have a time of need, what we have is access, direct access, right in to the throne of God to get mercy and grace when we need it. Because we're going to have that time of need. I hope that helps you this morning. Hope somebody is at that place where they need that. Okay, the next thing, one more 
one or two more little things real quick. Has anybody, anybody filled in the blanks on the R rather than R? Respond rather than react. Never underestimate the value and or the potential of a well-measured, thought-out, faith-filled response. And I know you've heard this before. This is not, this is not uh, new, groundbreaking rocket science here. But on the other hand, how many regrets do you have to live with or have you had to live with because you reacted by saying or doing the very first thing that came into your mind? I mean, a pure gut, knee-jerk reaction. How'd that work out for you? I don't know about you, but the answer to that question for me is more than I care to think about. So why is this so hard? Why, are, why is this so difficult? Well, first, it, it doesn't come natural. It, it does not, this does not come natural to us. This is an intentionally learned and practiced and prayed for ability. You have to work at this. You have to be conscious of this. And you have to make that, that uh, intentional decision that you're going to wait before you open your mouth or you, do, or you take that action or whatever. And it's hard. It is very hard. I'll give you a little fishing example. When you're throwing a topwater bait, Throw it out there and you twitch, 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 twitch. When that bass comes up and hits that thing, <laughs> it makes that big noise when you hear that water splashing or whatever. If you jerk right that second, you're going to jerk it right out of his mouth. One of the hardest things in the world to do is stand there and hold that pole and let that thing blow up on that bait, but you hold that pole till that bass gets that in his mouth and then you set the hook. It is hard. It's very hard. But this right here is harder. When somebody insults you, when somebody cuts you off, when somebody cheats you, you know, what it, whatever the case may be, uh, you've got to take that pause and respond rather than react. And if you look at Joseph so far in this story, Uh, he's been thrown in a pit by his brothers, drug out, sold into slavery, uh, put in an impossible no-win situation with his master's wife, thrown into prison. I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph at this point, I'm ready to have a pity party. I'm ready to just fall down like a three-year-old and have a temper tantrum. This is not right. This is not fair. God, how could you let this happen to me? Matter of fact, I mean, I don't know that I wouldn't be tempted 
to say, you know, God, I've had about all the help I can stand. But not Joseph. That's not what Joseph did. Joseph continued to respond as though God was with him. In every situation, he took where he was, where he landed, by however it happened. He took it and he thrived in that place because Joseph chose to respond rather than do the natural reaction to this. And in the coming weeks, and I can't, can't say too much about the coming weeks because it kind of steps on the sermons that are coming up, but we'll see in the coming weeks that God had a plan all along and that uh, his plan for salvation for you and for me is hinging right now on what Joseph does. The whole entire plan of salvation for the rest of the world is hinging on Joseph's responses, not reactions. Never underestimate the value or the potential of a well-measured, thought-out, faith-filled response. It has the power to change the course of your it changes the course of Joseph's life and it can change the course of your life. Finally, one last thing. Horatio. Who is Horatio? Does anyone here know who Horatio Spofford was? Horatio Spofford was a successful lawyer and real estate investor in Chicago in the 1800s. He was a Christian, uh, and he counted counted among others uh, the great evangelist uh, D.L. Moody uh, Moody, among his friends. Uh, Things were going well for Mr. Spofford. and then in a turn of event, in, in almost a series of events that's almost akin to Job in the Bible, uh, in 1870, he lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire burned down almost all of downtown Chicago, including a lot of the real, most of the real estate that he owned, uh, many other properties he owned. I think over 300 died. Close to 10,000 were homeless after this fire. In 1873, two years later, he and his family decided that they were going to take a trip to England where his friend uh, D.L. Moody would be preaching. And they were going to spend some time with him. Delayed by business, he sent his wife and four daughters ahead. And he would join them. His plans to join them. And then another tragedy. Uh, His family's ship was struck by another vessel and sank in 12 minutes. 266 people lost their lives. And among them, his four daughters. 
Only his wife made it alive. <clears throat> she sent him a telegram that included, among other things, saved alone. Setting off to be reunited with his wife, the captain of the ship that he was on summoned him, summoned Horatio to the bridge and told him that they were passing very near to the place where his family's ship had gone down. And it is said that he returned to his cabin and he wrote a hymn that we're about to sing. Because of this man's response to circumstances that I can't even imagine, millions of people have been blessed by what he wrote. As the band comes on up, his response carries over to today as we sing this song. So I'll end with this. I'll ask you one question. Is it well with your soul? <laughs>